The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Oldham County, Kentucky, and is reproduced here for the benefit of its members. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. As we continue our series through the book of Acts, and this morning we are looking at Empower to Serve in Acts chapter 6, and really we're just going to focus this morning on the first seven verses of this, and then we'll pick up the remainder of the chapter next week along with Acts chapter 7. But Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and uh, I'm going to read this now, verses 1 through 7. I want to invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect word. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Father, we read about the church increasing and the gospel bearing fruit. And Lord, Lord, we long to see that in our own day. We long to see the fruit of the gospel multiplied. And so Lord, we, we recognize here that in this book of Acts, Lord, in your word, you, you show us what it looks like, what the church looked like that you used then and what the church should look like that you desire to use now. And Lord, we want to be that kind of church built upon Christ, our cornerstone. So Lord, help us this morning as we look at your word. Uh, Lord, help us to hear this, not as the words of man, but Lord, this is your very word to us. Change us by it. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, It's no secret that I love VBS. Um, I've told y'all before my testimony, and to be honest with you, I don't know if I would be here without VBS. It was at VBS, and, and you know, I went to a lot of VBSs, a lot. Like my, we were like the family that like, oh, Aunt Jan's having a VBS at her church, you're going there. Aunt Sheila's having a VBS at her church, you're going to that one. And so I would go every summer, and, and I know for a fact that that is where the gospel was planted 
in my heart. That is where I memorized verses, John 3.16, John 14.6. I remember that I memorized those verses. I can remember trying to memorize those verses. I can remember trying to memorize John 3.16 because there was a girl in my class that I liked, and I didn't want to stand up in front of all the others and not know the verse because I needed to impress her. So I'm all about BBS. But listen, there's a lot of reasons to like it. Not only that, how else do you get five straight days of gospel witness with kids in your own community? Kids that you're going to see at the ballpark and know their families. Kids that your kids are going to go to school alongside, right? And we get to get in the community and share Christ with them. Every summer. And many of those kids come back summer after summer after summer. What a privilege that is. But there's another reason that's sometimes overlooked. And, and I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give you a comment that I got from a family uh, this week. Uh, somebody came up to me and said, wow, it's amazing how much church participation you guys get at VBS. And, and that's it, guys. That's, that's one of the other reasons I love it so much because this is a ministry that we're committed to in the summer and the whole entire church has to come together to be able to pull it off at the level that we pull it off. 158 kids. We're a church of about 100 members. So like, you better believe that we need all hands on deck for that. We need all kinds of people with all kinds of gifts serving in all kinds of different ways. We need security and administration and registration and decorating and music and drama and multimedia and the soundboard and teachers and games and crafts and group leaders and food and hospitality and first aid and janitors and a prayer team. One of my favorite things about this year was a group of our elderly ladies who didn't need to be mixing it up in here, but committed every night to going into my office and sanctifying my office with prayers to God for the work that was happening simultaneous. That's, that's what makes it go, right? We need all of that. So every summer, VBS provides an opportunity for the whole church to mobilize in pursuit of one goal, making Jesus Christ known in our community. Now imagine if we were all the same and we had all the same gifts. Do you think we'd be able to pull it off? No. You know, one of the things that God in His wisdom is doing in the church is He's putting together diverse kinds of people because the church needs people with different gifts to pull that off. It wouldn't work. We don't need a road crew where, where one guy has a shovel and there's four supervisors standing there watching him. We need all kinds of different people, don't we? And it displays the wisdom of God in putting His church together by His design by His wisdom. 
As you know, as we've been going through the book of Acts, there's a similar thing happening here. And we begin to see how this church functions in Acts chapter 6. We know that the church is growing. In fact, we're reminded of that often. Almost every week we're reminded of that. In verse 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. So the disciples are, are becoming more plentiful. There's more followers of Jesus because the gospel is being proclaimed. Remember that at this time in history, there's really just one church. It's in Jerusalem. At this point, the church hasn't even began to spread out into Samaria, much less to the ends of the earth. And so here we are in the one church in Jerusalem, but it's about to go global because it's about to get to a point where it's going to start exploding. And you better believe, church, when a church begins to grow, when a church becomes unified, there is going to rise up opposition to stop that growth. And we've already seen that. Listen, the forces of darkness in this world, and you better believe they exist, do not want to see the church healthy. They do not want to see the church grow numerically or into maturity in Christ. And so there's all kinds of opposition. There's opposition right now in this church. There always is. It's not that there's opposition that exists. It's how the church overcomes it in the gospel. That's what matters, right? We've already seen opposition. Well, we saw last week that there was internal opposition with Ananias and Sapphira, this couple who lied to the church who were hypocrites, who tried to look more righteous than they really were by pretending to give a huge sacrificial gift, but really they didn't give as much as they said they were going to give, and God removed them. And then we saw external opposition. We saw persecution as, as some of the apostles and disciples were arrested. Well, this morning we arrive at a new threat. It's also an internal threat, and we, we read about it in verses 1 and 2, the threat. Look with me there. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, when it says there's a distribution, we need to remember what's been going on in the book of Acts. In Acts 2.45, we read that this church was selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In chapter 4, verse 32, we read this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And so there is a culture here in this church of generosity. 
I want to remind you, because I, I think sometimes we think that the Holy Spirit only comes in these kind of like big, dynamite, fantastic ways, like speaking in tongues. Well, that's the Holy Spirit. Or if somebody gets healed. Well, that's the Holy Spirit. But, but I want you to know that people who are radically generous in the name of Jesus, that's the Holy Spirit too. Remind you that we saw last week that one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in the life of a person is, it brings, is He brings boldness into our lives. Church, I have never met a cowardly, generous person. You cannot be a coward and be generous at the same time because generosity requires courage. It requires you to say, I am not trusting in my possessions. I am giving it away for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ because I trust the God of this, of, of this universe. So there's this generosity happening. And we see that there, the beneficiaries of this generosity are the widows. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrew, Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, you've got to understand a little bit about widows in this world. A woman who had lost her husband, she didn't have a 401k to rely upon. She didn't have her, her spouse's insurance policy to pay her out. She didn't have government social security plans. She didn't have health insurance. She had no means of provision as soon as she lost her husband. And if she didn't have a family, well, then she had no one. And so what do we see happening? We see the church stepping into the lives of these people and saying, we're going to be your family now. You may have lost your husband. You may not have anyone to take care of you. We are your family now. We're the church. Church, listen to me. That, is, that has always been God's design for His church. There is a reason why in the New Testament... When people are baptized and join the community, they immediately begin calling themselves brother and sister. That's not just cute language. It's interesting, that's a practice in my life. Sometimes people just in the world will call me brother. Hey, brother. And I have to make a commitment to never respond to anyone but my brothers in Christ in that language. Because at the end of the day, they're not really my brother. My brothers are the people here that have the same spirit as me. This is my family now. There's a reason why the church is often referred to as the household of God in the New Testament. And we've read about it in Acts. They're gathering in homes and they're sharing everything in common just like a family. You know, my wife and I don't have separate bank accounts. And if you're married, if you come to my premarital counseling before you get married, I'm going to tell you, you don't need to have separate bank accounts because we're a family. Nothing I have is my own in my family. I share everything. Trust me, even if I don't want to share it, 
Even if I have a special goodie that I hide in the freezer, it gets found. We're a family. But listen, this emphasis easily gets missed in this American megachurch model where the church isn't about living as a family. It is about a huge event that you come to with thousands of anonymous faces that you don't even know. Church, that's not the design of God for His church. God's design is for us to be a family. And I want you to notice that it's a multicultural family. We know that it's about to be a multiracial family because the gospel is about to go to the ends of the earth. At this point, we see that even before it leaves Jerusalem, it's a multicultural family because there is a dispute, a complaint by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. How do I explain this? This is kind of hard to understand, but get me here. There were Jewish people who had converted to Christianity, and some of them were Jewish people who still spoke Hebrew and still preserved Jewish culture, even though they were living in Gentile territory. But these are people in Jerusalem. But all of this is Gentile territory right now, right? So Jerusalem has been taken over by Rome. There are also Jewish people who have converted to Christianity, and they have kind of accommodated to Roman culture. They are speaking Greek, and they are also culturally appropriating their lives in that way. If you think about it this way, you have progressives and conservatives. And don't think about that politically the way we do today. The progressives would have been people who were open to Greek culture, and the conservatives would have been people who were very committed to preserving their Hebrew culture. But what, for whatever reason, the Hellenist Jews, the Greek Jews, their widows were being overlooked. And the, the text doesn't tell us why. Was it a language barrier? <clears throat> Was it an unintentional oversight? Was it discrimination? We don't know. What we do know is that it was a problem. A problem that needed to be solved. And so it's brought to the, attentions, the attention of the apostles. And the apostles respond in verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, so the whole church gathers, and they said, listen, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In other words, we can't be burdened with this because God has called us to do something else. He has called us to devote our lives to preaching. Acts 1.8, you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That was the calling for the apostles. Now I think sometimes when we read this, this verse, it's easy to read it in kind of a disparaging tone like this. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And I don't think that's right. I don't think that's the way they said it. I don't think they're saying they don't want to feed widows because it's beneath them. And, and we see that because we read the rest of the passage. The, the apostles aren't saying we're too important. 
We've already seen that the Holy Spirit's work is discernible in two ways. Number one, through proclamation. Number two, through deeds of service, through word and through deed. And it's, this is so important that here in a minute, they are going to stop everything and appoint leaders to manage, to make sure that all the widows are taken care of. The issue is not that this is undignified work or less important work. The issue is that the apostles are limited. They are finite. They can't do it all. And church, neither can you and neither can me. In the life of the church, one of the things we learn in this passage, there are all kinds of good things that we need to do all kinds of things that God is going to providentially bring before us to do. Things that we can't overlook. One of the things we've been committed to as a church is orphan care. We have many families who have adopted. We have many families who have fostered or want to foster or are in training to be to foster parents. And we're committed to that. We also have various benevolence needs that we meet when people come and say we need help we need groceries we're committed to helping them <clears throat> but these vital ministries must never replace our commitment to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ as a church we can't become so committed to benevolence ministry that we stop proclaiming the truth of the gospel you see because benevolence ministry and orphan care flows out of gospel proclamation. The, the, the duty, the call of the church to proclaim Jesus never stops, never ceases. One of the other things that I think we can learn from this dilemma is that it's okay, church, if there are people in the church who aren't as passionate as you are about particular things, right? You know, you get real passionate about worship ministry. Dan, you know, Dan gets real passionate about worship ministry. And he says, why isn't everybody else like I am about this? You see how that wouldn't work? Because some of you are real passionate about ministering to pregnant moms and, and helping people who have surprise pregnancies and counseling them and ministering to them right we need people who are passionate about all kinds of things and so here in this church they say all right we are going to designate a team and so that's the thing we see second in verses three through six the solution they're going to delegate they're going to divide the work verse three therefore brothers pick out from among you seven men of good repute full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty. This is our first ministry team in history. Or, we're Baptists, I forget. This is our first committee. Did you know that the Southern Baptist Convention has a committee on committees? I kid you not. We love some committees, don't we? So they say we need a committee of people who are qualified to manage this important ministry. <clears throat> now, I believe that this is where the office of deacon comes from because the word deacon is used a couple times. 
Uh, it's used, it's the word for service. So when they say it is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables, that's the word in verb form that we get the word deacon from. And so there needs to be people in the church who are devoted to this kind of servant ministry. And what this does is it accomplishes two things. Number one, it ensures that the essential ministry of gospel proclamation continues. And number two, it frees, or it ensures that the widows are taken care of. And number two, it frees the apostles to preach and pray. Verse four, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, this whole solution arises from a belief that the whole church is responsible for the work of ministry. I think we get that here. But church, do you understand that ministry is not just for the professionals? You, you don't pay the pastor to do all the ministry, right? The pastor is called by God to lead the church to do the ministry. That's the job of the pastor. We are all to do ministries. John Stott in his commentary on this passage says, all Christians without exception being followers of him who came not to be served but to serve are themselves called to ministry. Indeed, to give their lives in ministry. God does not call the church to ministry. It is not equipped to accomplish in other words, if we have a ministry to do, then God has also raised up within the church the people to do it. If we don't have the people to do the ministry, then we're not called to do the ministry. God's the Lord of His church. 2 Corinthians 5.15 Christ died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, is he talking about all pastors there? No. Christ died for all. Why? That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Church, listen to me. Did Jesus die for you? Was Christ raised for you? If the answer to that question is yes, then you are called to live your whole life for Him. And you better believe that involves ministry. More than once over the years, I've had people say, Pastor, can we meet with you? And I say, yeah, of course. You know, you, you all know that if you need to meet with me, you can meet with me anytime. And, and they come into my office or, or say we're meeting for coffee or lunch, and they say, I wanted to meet with you because I've got this great ministry idea that I think our church needs to do. And I say, all right, tell me about it. And inevitably, they have this elaborate plan. And you know what? It's usually a really good idea. And then when we get to the end of the conversation, I realize that they have, they have organized this meeting in order to pass their ministry idea to me. Because they want me to do it. Because the idea is their part, 
but the ministry is the pastor's part. So you're the one, pastor, who needs to execute my idea. And I've come up with a policy. Or anytime somebody tells me about a great idea, I just say, great, I can't wait to see what you're going to do with that. It's going to be great. Because listen, you are just as capable of launching a ministry as I am. And if God has given you a passion for a particular ministry, you need to do it. You're the one that needs to do it. Because trust me, it will work way better if the person who is passionate about it is the person leading it. It's the way it works. But you know, it's tempting to entrap ourselves in cycles of busyness in our lives where, where we just don't leave room for ministry. And we tell ourselves, you know, my life is so full. We've got these commitments to Little League, and we've got these commitments to music lessons, and we're running our kids all over town, and I've got this hobby I like to do. And, and it's easy to think, I'm just too busy right now to serve the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, if you feel trapped in cycles of busyness, that entrapment is an entrapment of your own making. You've got to leave room in your life to serve Jesus. You've got to leave room in your life to serve His church. All of us do. We're all called to this. It's irreplaceable. It's non-negotiable. It's what the Spirit is doing in His church. Now, there's no apostles today, church. Did you know that? Contrary to what you might see on certain TV channels. The apostles died. There were 12, and then there was one untimely born to the Gentiles named Paul. None of them are around anymore. And so now, in the church, the ministry of the Word has been entrusted to pastors or elders. And th those words are used interchangeably. Bishop, Pastor, elder. That's one office. Shepherd. That's what the word pastor means. The pastor is called by God to devote his life to teaching the word, preaching the word, writing, counseling, training, and of course, verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And to prayer. And I just, as I was studying this passage this week, I thought, you know, what an amazing gift that I've been given. And I, I honestly am so grateful that I pastor a church that believes that these things are important enough for me to devote my life to. And I want to thank you for that. That I feel completely freed to devote my life to teaching, preaching, writing, counseling, training, and praying. And that means that there are so many other people stepping up to do so many other things that need to happen in the church to make it go because I can't do it all. And if it all depended on me, it would fall apart. And that doesn't mean that pastors never serve. 
And it doesn't mean that people who are serving never preach or teach the Word. In fact, one of the people who is called to this ministry, Stephen, is also a powerful preacher, and we're going to see him preaching next week. What this means is that we devote ourselves to something primary. That's the language in verse 4. The apostles say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This is our primary calling. I'm sure the apostles helped put out chairs when they met for worship, you know? I'm sure they didn't sit around and watch everybody else working while they, while they said, no, we're, we're preachers. That's not the image. But their life, their life is, is expected to be devoted to the ministry of the Word because the church values the ministry of the Word because the church believes that this is where everything begins and ends for us, church, in the Word of God. Notice that any level of leadership requires qualifications. And what they said, please, the whole gathering, the whole church says, yes, this makes sense. And so they chose several people. Try to go through those names again. I'll skip it this time. They, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. But look back up at verse 3. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute. In other words, what is their reputation like? Full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint this day. So they need to have a good reputation. They need to be full of the Spirit. They need to be full of wisdom. Those two things go together. If you're full of the Spirit, you're going to be full of wisdom. You have to have discernment. Discernment. You have to have a knowledge of Scriptures. There's a maturity here that these leaders had to have. Obviously, these qualifications are repeated in the later part of the New Testament when Paul gives qualifications for elders and deacons. It's expanded. And then they, they set about them with a physical sign in verse 6. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. They gathered around them and they laid their hands on them. Now why? You know, for some reason, we don't like physical signs a whole lot as Baptists. That's not historically always been the case. I believe that God has so wired our hearts to need tangible, physical acts to initiate and celebrate key moments. There's a reason why Christ calls us to baptize someone who's a new believer. That physical sign doesn't save anybody. That's a physical act that initiates something. Membership into the church, but also the publicity of someone who is now a believer in Jesus Christ. That faith has gone public. They have publicly identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We see it in the Lord's Supper. Church, we're dependent upon the body and blood of Jesus every single day of our lives. And that dependence, Jesus gave us a physical sign to spiritually feed us and nourish us when we gather together as his people, the Lord's table. That's why we do that. That's what a wedding is, by the way. Did you know that a wedding 
Nothing really happens there. I mean, two people could just say, hey, I want to marry you. I want to marry you. All right, let's get married and go about their lives together, married. But we have a wedding because it is a physical sign where people gather around and celebrate this key moment where these two people were two and now they're becoming one. We see a physical sign here. They gather them around and they lay their hands on them, the apostles do, because it is a physical sign. Remember how I told you at the very beginning that the book of Acts is really the acts of the ascended Jesus, right? Jesus has ascended to the Father. He has sent his spirit to fill up his people, but Jesus is still the one doing the work through his people. And so when these apostles lay their hands and and consecrate and commission and authorize these seven men for this ministry, it it is representing the hands of Jesus himself. When the church decides this is good, when two or three gather in his name, Jesus is right there with them. And so they lay their hands on them. From that point on, they have now been commissioned for this deacon-like ministry in the church. And what's the result? Verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What's the result? The threat to the health of the church has been overcome because the gospel has triumphed. And so now the gospel keeps multiplying. So much so that even Jewish priests are repenting and putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Unlikely candidates, church. You would not look at a Jewish priest in this culture and go, yeah, that's a likely target for Christianity, for evangelism. And yet the gospel is triumphing. Because the church is remaining unified around the gospel. Imagine what could have happened here. Let me give you a few things that could have happened. The Hellenist widows could have said, you know what? We're leaving. We're going to another church. Now, there wasn't another church, you see? But that's what would have happened in many of our churches today, right? They would have said, you hurt my feelings. You've offended me. You guys overlooked us. We're not going to stick around anymore. We're out. I promise you, that would have impacted the church negatively. The apostles, the apostles could have gone, you know what? Here's a problem. We're going to have to fix it. We're going to have to commit to it. We're going to give in. They need us to do this too. We're going to keep preaching. We're going to do this too. And they would have been distracted. They would have been overworked. They would have been burnt out because they can't do everything. I promise you that would have negatively impacted the church. The church could have said, no, we don't want these seven. We want the apostles. That would have negatively impacted the church. You know what the seven could have said? The seven could have said, you know, we've got full-time jobs. You can't expect us to commit to that. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. I promise you that that would have impacted the church negatively. Negatively. 
But none of that happened. Everyone involved sacrificed their individual egos because they understood that Jesus Christ died for them. He died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Church, that's the calling upon all of us. May we be such a unified church around the gospel today. Let's pray together.